Uh, well, uh, so glad you're here. I want to welcome those who are worshiping online with us as well. Glad you're here. I uh, wanted to start out with kind of some definitions. We started last week by defining what war is um, because we wanted to kind of get rid of some of the uh, kind of fear that's associated to this word of what war might be. But war is simply a struggle to achieve a goal. That, that's what we mean by war, and that's like the official definition because if you like search it on Google, this is what comes up, and you know that like... God wrote the Bible, then Google. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that's kind of that's what that is. It's a, it's a struggle to achieve a goal. And so what that means is when we think of war, um, you know, it can have positive connotations because we can war against something. We can also war for something. Uh, I can war against cancer, and I can war for kids that have it, right? Does that make sense? I can war against poverty, and I can, I can war for those that are trapped in a cycle of poverty. I can, I can war against, like, uh, the moral you know, families falling apart, but I can, I can war for those who are trying to rescue their kids or trying to reach their kids or trying to save a marriage. And so now that's kind of what we mean by war. It's just a struggle to achieve a goal. So what that means is this, the value of any war, be it corporate, be it international, be it national, be it in a community, or be it personal, the value of any war all has to do with whether or not the issue we're addressing is actually worth fighting for. Make sense? The value of any war struggle to achieve a goal has to do with the value of that, the value of that goal. Now, part of our history as a nation is when we sent, back in the day, primarily men over the seas to do battle on different battlefronts around the world. When that happened, the home team got involved as well. And we, we worked to create things in the, so that the people on the battlefield had what they needed. And so we would like plant victory gardens and we would do food drives and we collected supplies and we volunteered. And this force at home was called the war effort. That's what it was called, the, the war effort. And so we defined war effort this way. War effort is this group of people willing to change and do whatever needs to be done in order to achieve a common goal. That's what the war effort is. A group of people. Here's what that means, friends. And man, if we could somehow get this word out. Here, let me just tell you. If we could unite. See, Tom in and of himself has a, has a circle of influence, has a circle of power, if you will. And you do too. Everybody has this. But man, if we can unite as a people group, if we could all get on the same page as a people group and we could unite about anything, we become this powerful force, and especially the church. And man, if you just saw the Night to Shine video, you just saw this in action, where a people decided this is worth our attention, this is worth our investment, and we could change anything. You mean anything? Yeah, anything that we deem it's worth it. Cancer, poverty, terrorism, injustices, family erosion, moral decay, abusive relationships, addictions, even the trajectory of not just one person's life, but get this, if a group of people could unite, we could actually change the trajectory of an entire community. But in order for this to happen, it requires war effort. And war effort definition has a dirty word in it that nobody in the room likes, and it's that word. In other words, we can't have a war effort and you sit there and be your same self. I can't be part of a war effort if I'm just going to be normal, boring Tom. But if I'm willing to change, and you're willing to link an arm with me, and you're willing to change, oh, like the Bible says, it's on like Donkey Kong right there, and it's, it's ready to happen. If we'll just unite together, man, it's going to happen. And that's a pretty powerful thing to think about. Now, you may be asking yourself, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, 
respectfully, I think it has a lot to do with Jesus. Last week, I introduced a topic that was controversial and for some, and, and it caused some unrest for us. But here's kind of why, just kind of putting it all out there. What is at stake that we would hold in such high value? In other words, Tom, what is the, what is the goal that is of such high value that you are suggesting I should change my life? What is at such high value that you would suggest I should change the way I do life, change the way I parent, change my marriage, change my resources? What are you suggesting? And I'm saying, it's actually not my suggestion at all. It's actually the basic DNA, chewy chocolate center, foundational belief of Christianity. And here's what it is. There's a heaven and there's a hell. And every person in all of history and all future will spend eternity in one or the other of those places based on what they did with Jesus Christ. Now, what do you mean by those terms, Tom? Because I don't talk very much about heaven, and when I say hell, I usually get in trouble. So, you know, what, what is it you mean by this? Well, uh, I, I would say that I believe heaven's an actual place, but I also believe heaven starts the day I meet Jesus. What do you mean by that? Well, heaven is living uh, eternally in the unlimited presence, power, and grace of God. And so I believe the moment I surrender my life to Jesus, I start receiving the grace of God. Does that make sense? And so heaven actually starts today, but one day I will live eternally in his unlimited presence. All right, well, what's hell? It's the opposite, and you know it. And I'm not just having to sell you on this one. You know it. Hell is living eternally under condemnation and separation from God. Again, I believe the Bible teaches hell is a legit place. But I think hell starts on this earth. And some of you kind of feel like you're really in it on the front line today. How so? Well, we're all born in this point of condemnation, the condemnation category, and then we make decisions that produce shame and guilt in our lives. Or someone else makes a decision that impacts us and produces shame and guilt. Well, that's hell. And then eventually what that means is if that doesn't go arrested, if that doesn't go changed, then what that means is eventually God will give us exactly what we wanted on this planet. And that's to live life without him. And so hell is living eternally under condemnation and separation from God. And as if that wasn't kind of disturbing enough in a world that is trying to say that everybody's okay, <laughs> Jesus taught he's the only way out of the condemnation category that all of humanity is born into. And Jesus is the only way into the freedom and forgiveness category. So everybody understands the condemnation category because we all have shame and guilt that produces in our lives, and we all get that. Jesus said, I'm the way out. In fact, Jesus said in the statement that eventually got him killed. Probably the most controversial thing Jesus ever said. And it's still controversial today. In fact, it's so controversial, some of y'all are going to throw a flag as soon as I say it. Because you're going to say, I don't buy that. Well, let me just tell you what Jesus says, and then you and I can determine about whether or not we're going to buy it. But Jesus said in this statement, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Tom, that sounds exclusive. I think it's because it is. Get this, this morning I'm reading my Bible, getting ready for the day. I'm reading a verse out of Isaiah. Listen to this verse in Isaiah, because this teaching isn't just like, oh, Jesus had a bad day, and he said something he shouldn't have said. <laughs> Actually, Jesus is saying what the Old Testament has said all along. Here's the verse from Isaiah. I was reading this, this morning. 
Turn to me, Isaiah 45, 22, if you're a note taker. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. That sounds exclusive. I think that's what Christians believe. I think it is. Now, either Jesus has just said the most arrogant statement ever uttered by a maniacal leader, or it's true. No in betweening. It's either true or it's a total flag throw. Nothing in between. And the thing about that is, if it's true for anybody, then it's true for everybody because truth is truth. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. That's, that's a bunch of bunk we all bought into. It's just true for everybody if it's true. Either Jesus is real or he's not. Either he says he's the way or he's not. C.S. Lewis coined the phraseology that you probably heard before. He said Jesus is either Lord, liar, lunatic. He can't be one of each. And let me tell you what that means respectfully. If you think Jesus was lying, you should run from this place. Don't even fiddle with it. It's not worth it. If you think Jesus was a lunatic then I would respectfully say, aren't we kind of crazy for following him? What are we doing following the dude if he was crazy? Well, he said some nice things, preacher. He was nuts. But if he's Lord, then why aren't we following him closer? If he's Lord. If he was the dude. Big D. Why am I not following him? Well, so many of the conversations I had this week after last week's uh, message was, you know, Tom, I like Jesus. I just don't always believe Jesus. And I, I respect the honesty of that statement because I would say that is probably true of a good many of us in this room. I follow some of Jesus' teachings, but not all of them. So in other words, you don't believe Jesus is really Lord. You believe Jesus is convenient. (laughs) He's costume jewelry for you. You will take the good parts of Jesus, and then you'll flush the parts of Jesus that he said, but he honestly couldn't have meant. Now, let me tell you where this comes from. And in order to tell you where this comes from, I have to bore you to death. I am. I mean, really. I mean, so you're probably going to, if you're going to snooze, this is a good moment. It's only it's a short time, but this is a good time to sort of check out and not listening. If you're kind of a mental trip person, you want to dial in. So many of you may have heard of postmodernism, but, but postmodernism has resulted in people like us who deny any kind of perfect law, any kind of moral law. Postmodernism has, saying, has said moral law essentially is what I can argue in the moment is best for me, what's best for you. Truth has now become this relative term, so that if you say this is the truth, your natural response is, well, it's true for some people. That's because of postmodernism. The idea that there is no perfect law, listen, that wasn't created to try to get rid of the condemnation category. Listen, this is huge. But postmodernism law, and the fact there's no law, was actually created to get rid of the stigma of being in the condemnation category. So what that means is, you can come here all sloppy, sinner, slimy like me. And we'll say, you ain't that bad. And you say, you ain't that bad. 
because it's all relative. So now what dominates the thinking in our culture is this. It's okay, everybody's confused, and nothing is really true. Now, even if you don't agree with how we got there, see if you agree with the statement I just made. I would suggest that what I see in culture, what I see in politics, what I see even in the Olympics when people try to get political because they can downhill ski and now they have opinions about the world. Um, but anyway, what I see in all those kinds of statements is essentially this. It's okay. Everybody's confused. Nothing's really true. And if you say I'm bad, then you're a poo-poo face. You know, that's kind of essentially the whole postmodern. I just summed it up right there for you. I can't believe I just said that last part, but I just <laughs> shouldn't have said that. And I can tell you where it comes from, but that's only going to make the story worse, and I don't want to get into it. So this is, this is how we handle the troubling thought, I would suggest. This is how we handle the troubling thought, listen, that people we love, people we're actually doing life with, people that are in our families, spouses, maybe the one that's here with you today, this is how we handle the troubling thought, maybe even ourselves, are spiritually lost in facing a Christless and godless eternity. Christians confess only one person ever lived totally right. If you're one of those people that believe Christians are hypocrites, you're right. Christians have never said anything different. What we've said is we believe there's one dude who did it perfectly right, and his name was Jesus, and he's the one who said, I'm the way. So last week we learned the term commander's intent, and it means how the commander defines a win on any battlefield. So if Jesus is our commander, for those of us kind of who believe, what's his intent for us? Matthew 28, Great Commission, the last speech Jesus gives before he leaves the planet and goes to be with the Father. Jesus came and said to them, all authority, anybody want to guess what I want to emphasize today? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what he said. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So now I have a question. In light of this whole summary, I have a question. And it plays out, plays off this word authority. And just a warning, as I phrase the question, it may seem a little crass to some people. I don't know. But I just want to keep it real. Here's the question. Who died and left you God, Jesus? <laughs> How did you get in that spot? How did Jesus get authority? Who, who said he was in charge? Was there a vote somewhere? Like the majority vote took place and like I didn't see it? Was that like mom and dad did that, but I didn't get to? Was there an election where like 14 people, like gods came and said, hey, I'm going to be God. No, I'm going to be God. Here's why I think I should be God. Here's why I think I should be God. And then we all voted. Is that what happened? Was there an opportunity maybe for me to evaluate the quality of my life under this God versus the quality of my life under this God and determine which God should have authority? Who put him in charge? Why in the world should I even consider gathering in a room like this and consider Jesus being in charge? Let's make it even more personal. If you, Jesus, are going to ask us as a people to change, if you're going to ask me as a husband, as a father, as a man, to change and to embrace teachings and ideas that don't always come naturally to me. How I handle my resources in a way that's anti-cultural. How I can believe in a way that seems like it's exclusive to other people. Essentially, Lord, if you're going to ask me to release the control and direction of my life over to someone else besides me, how do I know you're the one I should choose to follow? 
Who died and left you God? And that's what I want to try to go after today. Jesus says, all authority, heaven and earth, has been given to me. Now, immediately, those of us who have the gift of skepticism in the room uh, kind of feel like we don't want to, we sort of want to distance ourselves from what Jesus said, and to be honest, maybe from Jesus, because I hear that word authority, and I kind of shrink back a little bit. Authority isn't always respected anymore in our culture, and it's like, who are you to be in charge, and all that kind of stuff, and in fact, we're more likely to embrace this broad pattern, I'm in charge, I manage my own life, my own destiny, and if someone has authority, let me just tell you what happens in case you don't think this way, but if someone has authority, let me tell you what's going to happen. The law is going to follow. If a person says, I'm in charge, they're the ones that are eventually going to make some decisions that will impact your life. It just happens. They're the ones, if someone says, I'm authority, they're going to start saying what's right and wrong, and all of a sudden, everybody's going to get uncomfortable. And the bottom line result is we don't trust or want authority in our lives. So my first reaction to what Jesus says in this verse is, well, who do you think you are? And as if the whole authority thing isn't enough, what I really am disturbed by is this whole business. Because if it just says Jesus has authority in heaven, I'm good with that. I don't know what that is. I'm not there yet. I'm good with that. But if Jesus is going to add that part on earth, all of a sudden I'm getting a little more uncomfortable. That's a, that's a bigger pill to swallow. God has authority in heaven, but on earth too. Because if he has authority on earth, let me tell you what this means. Just in case you're thinking about it, let me see if I can talk you out of it. If he has authority on earth, that means he has authority over you. Not you. That means you have to resign as regional manager of your universe. Because God has that authority. And we don't do that well. Jesus came, he said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You know, I've read that verse for like years. And I always figured that the first verb in this last part was to go. It's not. That's not the first verse, not the first commandment here. It's not that. It's not that this isn't a commandment. You know what the first commandment is? Make disciples. This is huge. Because for me, what this means is we're to follow commands of Jesus. And Jesus' authority, what he commanded us to do was to make disciples and to baptize and to teach those are the commandments of this whole thing. And, and, and that means that the commandments for the church, the, the, the war effort, are those, 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 those commands. Make disciples and baptize and teach. The go is actually translated as you're going or on your way. So uh, in Tom's life, as you live your life there in Central, as you do what you do, as you raise those kids, as you love that wife, as you lead that church, as you're going, command, make disciples. Not an option. As you do what you do, 
Make disciples. Command. So now I sort of get to the point what Jesus is commanding me to do, what that authority is commanding me to do. I, I get to that. So are you all with me? So what Jesus is commanding us to do is make disciples, baptize, teach. Okay, that's what he's saying to do. But we still haven't got to the, this question, who put Jesus in the corner office? How did he get there? Who died and left you in charge? And Jesus had a very interesting answer to that question. When he was asked, who died and left you in charge? Jesus said, well, I died. And in these verses are one of the only times in Scripture, there may be another, I just couldn't find it, but one of the only times in Scripture where Jesus actually throws the authority card on the table. Jesus came and said, all authority, boom, mic drop, trump card, whatever word you want to say. This is the moment all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me like a king. He's like a king, that kind of word. The same word would be used to describe a king. He says, I'm, I'm in charge. You know, there's another, another term that sometimes used in battlefield. You can ask, you know, soldier people about all this kind of thing. But there's another term that they use in battlefield. It's called unity of command. And I love this term. Um, as best I understand unity of command, what it, what it means is this. There, there's a hierarchy in military, okay? And you may not like it, but it is. It is what it is. And there's always someone in charge. And if that ever falters, whether it's a big operation or a small operation, if that ever falters, then the goal is in jeopardy now. So on any field of battle, there has to be absolute clarity about who is in charge and who has authority. That's unity of command. And let me just bring it to your, to your lap for a moment. Who would you say has unity of command in the army of you. Don't give me Jesus' answer. Don't do that. Who would you say? Come on, let's, be, let's keep it real. If I'm going to be real, you be real. It, who would you say has, the, has unity of command in the army of Tom? In Matthew 8, Jesus is walking around Capernaum. Only thing you really need to know about Capernaum is it's a Roman outpost. What that means is Rome was taking over the world. And part of how they did that was they would get in these villages and they would put military in those villages at the edge of their territory. And that's how they kind of advanced their, their, their territory. So Capernaum's one of these Roman outposts. Jesus is walking around. He runs into this dude as a centurion. Centurion meant that he was in charge of at least 100 soldiers. This is an authority dude. You with me? He's a Roman centurion. So what that means is we don't know and don't have any reason to believe he's a believer. So he comes up to Jesus one day, and he's been watching Jesus, and he has this conversation. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 8, verse 6. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. Don't you love Jesus in this moment? <laughs> okay, let's go fix this. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Why would he say that? Because he's used to command. Unity of command, he's used to authority. You don't want to come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now, just a couple of things to point out here. I highlighted the word Lord because the, 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 the centurion isn't saying, like, he's not singing a praise chorus here. It's not, it's not like, Lord, I lift your name on high, or I love you, Lord, you know, all this thing. It's not that. He's actually saying, yes, sir, no, sir. That's what the term means. 
He's saying, uh, yes, sir, my servant is lying paralyzed. I'll come to your house and say, no, sir, I'm, I'm not worthy of you. That's what he's saying. Because he's an authority guy. He gets the unity of command. He understands what it means for someone to be in charge. And he says that actually in the next verse. He says, for I too am a man under authority. Yes, sir, no, sir. I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one person, go, he goes. To another, come, he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. So the centurion is saying, I get you. I've seen you function. I've watched you work in this village. I know you have authority. I know who's in charge. I don't even know if I believe, but I have certainly have seen you do things that are whack, and that means you are higher up the scale than I am. We speak and people do stuff. We're in charge. <laughs> you speak to people and they get healed and demons run out of people. That's, that's something above my pay grade. And the centurion actually works through the ranks of authority. He actually follows a leader named Caesar who said he was God. So he gets it. Now the amazing observation of this centurion as a leader in the pagan army is that Jesus has some kind of authority ends up happening that the servant gets healed. But the really stunning part of this particular story is verse, verse 10 of chapter 8. When Jesus heard this, in other words, the, the, the centurion said, hey, just say the word, he'll be healed. You don't have to come. Just like drone it over there or whatever, you know, just kind of just airmail it, <laughs> whatever you got to do, you don't have to come. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Some of your translations will say astonished. I think it's one of the only times in Scripture Jesus is astonished. And he said to those who followed him, pause. Jesus is getting ready to say to the people who are committed what he has just seen in a soldier who may or may not have been committed. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, you might understand the words of Jesus were not received well by the religious leaders who heard him say that. <laughs> Jesus just praised the faith of a Roman officer, a leader in a pagan army, and yet that's how authority works. You have faith in the commander, in the one in charge. That is unity of command. The centurion recognized Jesus had authority. In another setting, Jesus is being heckled by religious leaders. So he's teaching, and people are saying, you know, hey, 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 boo, 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 you know, whatever they're saying. I don't know, they're heckling him. And uh, what he's being heckled out initially was the whole idea of, of who his father is. Now, let me just tell you what's really happening here, just to kind of keep it real, kind of bare-knuckled here. <laughs> Jesus is talking to these Pharisees, and he's talking about who the father is. And the and the Pharisees are heckling him, saying, hey, Jesus, we know who your father is. Do you? Why would they say that? Well, y'all remember the whole Christmas thing? So they all knew Jesus had no idea who the earthly father was. Are you following? Because Jesus is born out of controversy. Mary said she was pregnant, but it's okay. It's by an angel. Oh, that happens every day. No, never happens. So not everybody bought into that. So the Pharisees are actually sticking a knife in a spot of Jesus that is incredibly tender, right? Who are you to tell us who your father is? You don't even know who your father is, essentially is what they're saying. Pharisees said, we don't know who your dad is. 
But we know we come from Abraham. And Jesus actually went after that, and he said, uh, no, essentially your father is the devil. And, and that's when the fight started. <laughs> you know, that's when it got bad, you know. You are a father of devil, nanny, nanny, poo-poo face. You know, that's kind of what he said the whole way, and that was on. It was on. And, uh, in fact, they actually tried to stone Jesus and kill him in that moment, and he was able to slip out. As part of that whole discussion, Jesus said some incredible words. This is John 8, verse 23. Jesus said, I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Everybody, heaven and hell, everybody's going to spend eternity somewhere based on what they do with Jesus. So they said to him, who are you? Who put you in the corner office? Who gave you the authority? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the very beginning, people didn't understand. And then Jesus said these words, and here comes. So if you've been bored all the way to this point, dial in now. Here comes like the, the big middle of the Tootsie Pop right here. Here it comes. Ready? Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, pause, time out. What in the name of all things holy is Jesus even talking about? <laughs> He's talking to Pharisees who have just called him out and his family heritage and all the ways we do that in the South, they've probably said that there too. And he says to those people, when you have lifted me up, then you will know that I'm he and that I do nothing on my own authority. There's that word again. But I speak just as the Father taught me. And here comes the aha moment. Here comes the source of authority. And to me, it is... It is absolutely stunning. Even if you'll allow me, more personal, personally, here, here's why I choose to follow Jesus. If I could sum it up for you in like you know, a few seconds, this would be it. Tom, why do you follow Jesus? I would say this is probably what I would have to say. And why I think Jesus is worthy of consideration when you're looking for a way to do life. When you discover that you really weren't designed to be Lord of your own life because all you can really be Lord of is your own pile of hurt and shame and regret and other crap that we pile up that we don't want. When your convictions and the crisis in your life aren't matching and you find out you need something more, here's why I follow Jesus. Because in this moment, Jesus is prophesying about his own future. What Jesus is saying to these people is this. When you nail me to a cross when you lift me up and nail me to a cross and strip me naked and put a thorn on my head and a spear in my side when you do that when you discover that that happened when then you lay me in some tomb and the roman soldiers guard this tomb so nobody gets in nobody gets out and then we seal it and then three days later the tomb is empty and over 500 witnesses from all walks of life and all nationalities see me walking around and talking with them then a mighty movement will begin that ultimately will produce two billion people on the planet who are still going to be engaged over 2,000 plus years and the book I inspire is the best-selling piece of literature of all time then you will know my true authority then you will know I'm the one when you lift me up, they said, we're not going to lift you up, we're going to kill you. And in so doing, you're going to lift me up. And guys, i got to tell you, that's why I believe. In other words, I only know. Let me just tell you something, just to encourage your heart. All y'all are going to die. 
some of y'all closer than others who looked at that and said, yeah, we're, we're all going to die. But only one is going to be resurrected. And I love you. Some of you all I love a lot because you're like in my life. I couldn't do life without you. But I'm going to give my life to the one dude who conquered death. And when one of us in the room has conquered death and said he was going to do it before he did it, he has authority. When that's in the room, Tom doesn't need to speak anymore. We're going to let that guy talk. When someone wants to talk about what to do with one's life, my opinion, your opinion, I really don't care. Let's let him talk. When someone talks about how to save a marriage, you and I can read a self-help book, and you can give an opinion, I can give an opinion, we can do a swap opinion fest all we want. But I would say if he enters the room, let's shut up and hear what Jesus has to say about marriage. Let's shut up and let's hear what Jesus has to say about uh, raising kids, fighting addiction, dealing with the condemnation category. Let's let that dude talk. Because the only reason alive is here today isn't because somebody died. It's because of a death on a cross that was married to an empty tomb. And that's the authority that Jesus has and why we follow him. That's it. So if you don't buy that part, don't follow him. Now, if you don't buy that part, then you have to answer this other questions in your mind. Well, what happened? Because it's not just a church thing. It's a historical thing that the tomb was empty. Even the people that killed him tried to come up with a lie to figure out why that tomb was empty because they couldn't figure it out. So you have to figure out somewhere in your mind what theory you're going to go with. Some people say, just so you can get started on this, some people say Jesus wasn't really dead, he was drugged. And somewhere when the Roman soldiers were taking him in the tomb, he kind of popped up like a ninja, and he took everybody out, you know, and then he was kind of scampering away, you know, and that's kind of how this whole thing started. Other people said that the disciples stole the body. So apparently they were able to go and overpower the Roman legion that was there guarding the tomb. <laughs> and his fishermen were taking like private self-defense classes. And they jumped out and it scared the Roman soldiers. <laughs> you know? so maybe that's it. And you know, fine. You say, Tom, that's crazy. Well, you know what? Believing a resurrection is crazy too. Except the dude said he was going to do it. He said he was going to do it before he died. And the reason alive is here is because of that. That's the authority Jesus has. And Roman centurion recognized the authority. I didn't know if he was a believer. You know what? Some of us in the room, some of us watching online, we recognize the authority, even though we don't believe. We recognize that because Jesus said what he was going to do. Resurrection from the tomb. At that point, there's a small group of followers. They would, couldn't even fill this room with them. A few weeks later, Peter delivers a message. 3,000 people come to Jesus, and then it's on. Holy Spirit takes power and residence in the life of the believer. And as a result, we're sitting here in Central. So, Tom, why do you believe? Here it is. If Jesus can keep a promise like rising from the dead, maybe he really is who he claimed to be. And maybe he can do everything he promised he would do. That's why I believe. That's it. So let me ask you, 
who has unity of command in your life. Because if it's full authority, what that means is Jesus will call you to things you do not want to do. It does. It means Jesus will say things, ready? You aren't going to like. Jesus has said things that I struggle with, just being transparent with you. But if it comes down between me and the dude who resurrected, most likely I'm the one wrong. And respectfully, if your opinion doesn't jive with what Jesus teaches, you're wrong. He's the authority. And he proved it. And then he kicked death's hiney. And he raised up from the dead, doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Who is in charge? Because if you could settle that, if we could settle it as a church, then we could get about doing what the war effort really is. If we could believe with deep conviction that Jesus is who he says he is, then we could live hoping for anyone at any time to have a chance to decide for Jesus Christ. But if we can't decide on unity of command, we can never allow this to happen. That will never happen. So who's in charge? Your life. Who has unity of command? Lord, uh, man, that's tough. It's a challenging word. And it's kind of easy for me, I guess, at this point, because I've kind of thrown my eggs in this basket. This is what I believe. It's what I'm based my whole life on now. And man, as life has changed and I've grown and changed, I continue to put everything in this basket. And I realize I'm talking to people in the room who maybe, not everybody's done that. Some maybe have. I suspect there are a good many of us, Lord, that are trying to find a palatable Jesus. In other words, we're, we're going to follow Jesus as long as we can keep being who we are uh, as far as, you know, we want to do what we want to do. We can, we can kind of believe pieces of you. But man, that Lord liar lunatic thing messes me up with that, Lord. So I, I'm kind of a bottom line, whole hog kind of guy. And, and maybe there are some other folks here too. I'm just going to believe it. I am going to believe it. And listen, if you're in the room and you're, and you're, you're kind of wrestling and maybe watching online, maybe you're at home right now, but you're sort of wrestling with this whole issue, here's what I recommend you do. Go to the New Testament and read what Jesus did and then do it. You said, you know, that sounds so simple. Well, it's because that's what, really what it is. You go, just read what Jesus said and just do that. Loving people, yes, of course, but also how you handle your stuff, how you deal with anger, how you deal with worry. And yes, I am the only way. Read what Jesus said and just do it. And if you're going to reject it, well, at least reject Jesus. At least know what he said before you walk away. And for others of my friends in the room, maybe God, maybe God is wanting you to, maybe God's wanting you to be part of this. But the unity of command thing hasn't been settled for you. You're still keeping stuff back. Well, again, same idea. 
Go read what the scripture says about Jesus and see if you can get under his authority. See if you can follow that guy. Lord, I pray only by the power of your Holy Spirit that this part of your church would be awakened in a mighty spirit revival, a mighty spirit renewal. All the politics and power, Lord, all that stuff wouldn't hold a candle to a group of people who decide it's willing to change anything fall into the unity of command in order to take these hills for Jesus Christ. Have your way, be the way, in your name, amen.